0: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for September 13th, 2018, the Trump Economy Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am in Washington, D.C. Joining me through the magic of Copper Wire is John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. Hello, John. Hi. And from also the magic of Copper Wire... Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine who is in New Haven. Hello Emily. Hello, hello. On this week's GabFest. The fight about who is responsible for the thriving economy and why that matters. Then the state of the race. I said that in all caps. The state of the race. Could the Democrats take the Senate? Will they take the House? Can they do both? Can they do neither? Then the Trump administration announces a plan to change how it detains families or fam- migrant families, not all families. <laughs> I don't know if they're going to detain regular families. God knows. Perhaps that's probably coming. Who knows? Emily will explain. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And just one final reminder that Slate Day is coming up. That is going to be the live podcast experience in partnership with the Texas Tribune Festival. And it's going to be on. Saturday, September 29th at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin, Texas. We're going to be there with the Trump cast and Amicus and El Gabfest and the Gist. And you can go to slate.com slash live to learn more. The individual tickets to our show are sold out. However, you can still, I think, get an all access pass to the whole day, which will allow you to see us as well as all those other wonderful shows. And a reminder, we, of course, we have a great guest. DeRay McKesson is going to be our guest at that show. So go to Slate.com slash live. Come see us September 29th in Austin. The Trump economy, it's booming. Unemployment, 3.9%, the lowest rate in decades. GDP grew more than 4% last quarter. Wages are rising, adding tons and tons of jobs every month. Unemployment rates for African-Americans at the lowest in memory. Job growth is brisk. Meanwhile, the Obama economy continues its magic run. 95 straight months of job growth, kicked off by President Obama's post-crash policies. The job growth that flourished on his watch continues at a lower rate in this Trump economy. There's been a steady drop in unemployment, sure, but it started and was much steadier and much bigger in the Obama economy. So, John Dickerson, who deserves the credit? Is it an Obama economy? Is it a Trump economy? Is it everyone's economy? Is it neither? Is it both? The,
1: Ameri- the American people deserve the credit, David. The risk takers, the investors, the hardworking men and women who get up every morning and do their jobs. Um, are you a Walmart you ad? A
0: Walmart ad? Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, that, in fact, is you know partially true. The economy operates outside of uh, what a president can and can't do. I think, the, but they both deserve uh, credit. President Obama uh, inherited a, an economic collapse and catastrophe and... Um, and he, and even some holdovers from the, uh, Bush administration, um, helped put the economy back on what has been a slow, but long recovery. Um, and then, uh, uh, President Trump's policies of uh, tax cuts and regulation um, defenestration. Can you defenestrate regulation? Well, you can for the purposes of this sentence.
0: All window, re- um, window regulations could be defen- clearly defenestrated. Clearly have,
1: well, have been well received, especially in the context of all of the doom and gloom that was, um, that was uh, said about what he would do. But I think it's the wrong question. So I think it's the wrong question for both substantive and political reasons. The substantive question is, Uh, does the quote-unquote good economy, low unemployment, um, good growth, um, does that mask – Bigger problems, bigger challenges, income inequality, relatively flat uh, productivity, wage gains that are being eaten up by I- inflation. The fact that uh, job participation, which was a big deal for concert- for Republicans running, uh, is still at the um, lower place that it was. Well, that's in part because of the baby boomers, but also the participation rate among younger males and – and, and um, well, and uh, whatever. I don't need to tell you about more about that. But younger males, the participation rate is down and has been down. For a while, that is still a problem. So there are ways in which um, those are the questions that should be addressed and discussed. And oh, by the way, there's this question of is the were the economic activities that were that were or the economic measures that were taking place tax cuts and um, regulation. Did the tax cuts offer stimulus that's great now, but that we saw CBO offered new numbers this week, which suggests the deficit's getting even larger, uh, which will have effects down the road. Is there a cost to that economic benefit? The same is true with regulations. Um, burdensome regulations put on by pointy-headed bureaucrats we can all be against, but regulations that tend to encourage good behavior because you don't want to get into a bigger problem later because you've... You've not followed regulations now, we would agree, would not be a good idea. None of those things get discussed in this conversation of who gets credit for this or that. And finally, the political point. Donald Trump does better on the economy than almost any other issue, I think. He's happy to have a debate about whether he deserves credit or uh, President Obama deserves credit because what the voters he wants to send a message to for the midterms here is – Trump deserves some kind of credit, and um, and it keeps the conversation on the economy, which is, for for him, the best conversation of all the possible ones you could have, certainly better than Russia or anything else.
0: John, you ran through every single thing I wanted to talk about in your answer, which wasn't even an Should answer. It was just posing posing a question. Here, uh, here's one question for you, Emily, which is to, to linger on John's last point there for a second, which is uh, obviously if you're President Trump, the economy is – by far the best issue. It is, it is the thing that affects people most in their daily life. The evident, the, the, the data are very good in his favor, uh, con- contra all the foreign policy stuff, which people are very anxious about, and all the personal uh, circus stuff, which people are very unhappy about. It's, it's good news. And yet he seems uh, almost uh, pathologically incapable of staying on topic with it. What is his problem? Why doesn't he why doesn't he just simply talk about the economy and not talk about anything else?
2: I mean, that's just his nature, David. What can you say? Like how many times do, do we have to be hit over the head by this? I mean, you're asking me this question on a morning in which Trump is tweeting about how the Democrats, you know, uh, fakely ginned up, three thousand people dying in Puerto Rico after the hurricane. Just it was just, attacks, it was
0: just heart attacks, Emily. It's just heart. That doesn't count. It's just when so people insane. die of heart attacks, it doesn't. That's just. They're I just mean, dead. there have
2: to be a bunch of Republicans running for office who are just sorry that that was the tweet they woke up to this morning. So here's my question about the economy. One of the things that affects the level of investment is business confidence. And we see in surveys um, a real uptick, a sense of optimism among businesses. And as someone who wants to defend sensible regulation that protects against bad things happening in the future that we're totally then unprepared for, see the hurricane this week and climate change, I always find this a little frustrating because it suggests that there's this psychological dynamic in which the deregulation or having a Republican businessman in office just creates a kind of sense of excitement and like, let's start investing again. And then that generates its own positive outcomes, even if it's not for a very good reason.
0: Well, one one other way to look at that is Republicans in general are good at talking Optimistically about the economy and saying we're back and things are growing, and that if Democrats like set, set aside the, the the perception that Democrats are seen as a party of regulation and taxation and more like could if Democrats talk talked optimistically about the economy in the way that Republicans are capable of doing it, would they get that same benefit? Which I think Clinton was pretty good at. And if you remember Clinton's yes. twenty twelve convention speech for Obama, Obama had done a really poor job making his own case for the economic bounce back post-recession, post-crash. And then Clinton came out and gave a speech about it. And it was great. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, the economy is much better. And the Obama policies have really helped. But Obama himself was not very good at making that case. So I'm not sure that it's necessarily Republicans get the benefit and Democrats don't. It's more that, that if, you, if you are a more articulate messenger of optimism around the economy, the people will respond to that optimism.
2: Right, It's a really good point, because you know, one of the human traits that has a lot of value is humility and not overclaiming credit. And yet, if you are the President, there are some good things about marketing yourself that way can lead to this kind of virtuous cycle.
1: well, the, the one of the things that that they were always trying to wrestle with within the Obama administration was that if you touted the economy and its improvement, it felt like you were overlooking. And um, and not understanding the suffering that real people were going through. Um, and the president Trump seems to have no concerns about that um, at all. And the, the most acute example of that, speaking of the of the tweet the president sent out um, on the 13th of September, September, about the 3000 uh, people who died in Puerto Rico. He's talking about, liter- you know, human lives that have been lost. And not in the traditional way we think of talking about the loss of human life, which is sorrow, sadness, and um, despair of all the lives that were lost and the wreckage of the lives that were affected by those losses. But he's talking about it strictly in the context of defending his policies, in, in making a case for himself. So you see in that case where you're talking about literal life and death, he feels no um, duty to even nod to the, the sadness of loss of life. So if he doesn't in the case of life and death, he's really not going to in the, in the case of those many people who still have not um, enjoyed economic prosperity um, or address any of these underlying challenges that still face the economy um, in, a, in a world that really need concerted collective action. To prepare people for, you know, the next economic set of challenges, and to find some way to treat and 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 engage in the economic activity of America, those people have been left behind.
0: Right. I, I actually think that this is a case where the Republicans in general have it right, which is to ta- to tout and to talk about not, not not in the case of the Puerto Puerto Rico and the hurricane deaths, which is you know further shows his 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 Im- amorality or his complete pathology. But that that there is a benefit in talking about successes and opportunities and benefits and the gains, even though even even though it is clear that there's a tremendous inequality and and huge millions and millions of people are suffering because uh, that confidence game is actually part of what makes the economy do better. Um, mm-hmm. So that said, I want to go. I, I Going back to another point that John made, because he made every single point in his, his initial response, that, uh, Emily, what do you make of the, the, the Democrats' case that, well, of course the economy is growing now because Trump's tax cuts and modest bumps in government spending, uh, especially on the defense side, have sloshed enormous amounts of money into the economy, which has fueled jobs and spending. So, of course, we would expect the economy to grow and, and we're all uh, – Ignoring that this is sort of a caffeine and meth fueled binge, and that there is a there is a a, a fall off that will happen at some point in the future because we have borrowed too much and are are living on on uh, the future earnings of our children.
2: Well, I feel like the first part of that is just true that the fiscal stimulus is having this expected effect, and that when you go back to the Obama administration when they wanted to do a bigger stimulus. Um, that was more jobs-related rather than giving money back to super-rich people. Um, Republicans blocked them because of these fears of the deficit. Now we have further proof that, at least in the short term, a fiscal stimulus is a good idea. And then the question is, OK, well, what shape should that stimulus take? You know, if a Democrat was in office, presumably there would have been more spending – more direct benefits to middle class and poor families as opposed to this um, super rich tax cut. So the balance is in question, right? But the basic lesson of the effects of the fiscal stimulus seem pretty unassailable what I feel like is now more up to debate is how much debt load we can safely carry. You know, I, so, I feel like I sort of grew up with the mantra that like too much debt was really bad for the country and, and with the kind of, you know, methamphetamine-fueled image that you just put out there, David, and that now there's some flirting with the notion that debt levels can get higher without really affecting us that much, which I am really not sure what to make of.
1: Well, it is clear that there's this is sort of the second punch in a in a complete hollowing out of the conservative and republican uh, attention to debts and deficits. I mean, the first was that you had a candidate Chris Christie who tried to make the case in a, in what is sort of an old-fashioned republican responsible way that the um, the debt and deficit were too high and that, that Medicare had to be addressed and the rising cost of health care had to be addressed and there were all of these individual... Um, uh, he might have even talked about Social Security in that context. Surely he did. And he was basically like laughed off the stage. And in fact, uh, President Trump, to the, ex- the extent that he attacked um, Christie at all, but he, should, he didn't do much, uh, attacked this idea. So the the election of Donald Trump was... Uh, with the full, complete knowledge that um, he didn't care about debt and deficits, then in this case where the where the spending the the that has been resulted from the tax cut and um, and the regulations have gone away and the spending by the way there's actual government spending taking place that's making these deficit numbers that CBO is reporting even larger. The fact that that's not being talked about and that the, the success of the economy is being talked about is just kind of the second kick in the head for a party that once talked nothing – but nothing about this. So I don't know who um, – I don't know who, th- th- who brings this up now um, and when they do, whether anybody will listen.
0: Do, do you think, John, that actually – Republican fiscal discipline is a dead idea. Do you think that when there's a next a Democratic president, and the Democratic president is proposing, you know, expansive spending on on uh, housing and expansive, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ex- expansive spending on health care that. Republicans will be like yes well yeah that seems okay or do you think that yeah, the, no. the fiscal discipline no, no. like and will they be credible because of course we we forget that the same thing happened in the Reagan years which is that there was this Republicans had been nominally fiscally disciplined Reagan comes in and blows out the deficit um and yet it's – and and then Republicans go back several years later and are like, we're the party of fiscal discipline. We can't have this, this wanton spending by the Clinton administration.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Reagan could try to blame the Democrats for, you know, thwarting him from achieving his, um, his goals. That's harder to do in a kind of lockstep House and Senate that you've got now. Although people – I mean again, the, the arguments, you know, particularly in today's political conversation – only you know everything has the lifespan of a fruit fly. So yes, if you if you argue that the that I mean Paul Ryan's disappearance is in part a result of um, the death of any interest in fiscal responsibility, and so whoever decides to bring that up next will have all of these things that they have to account for, but. When they bring it up next, it will usually be in um, opposition to whatever the Democrats want to do or whatever a Democratic president wants to do. And since the goal is to be in opposition of what the people of the opposite party want to do, this is a ready-made set of arguments that appeal to people in a in a way that touches their daily lives, right? Because you can say to people, look, you have to balance your budget. Why shouldn't the federal government? And people get on board. So I think it will come back and um, – when somebody says, gee, when you were in power, you do, you went in exactly the opposite direction and you elevated a president who didn't believe in any of these ideas, they'll just say, yeah, but they're going to blow a hole in the deficit and move on. Indeed. I mean, you know, Dick Cheney apparently told Paul O'Neill, uh, O'Neill put this in his book, um, you know, O'Neill came in and was being sort of the old-fashioned um, Republican Scold and saying, "Look, you—you, you, you, this Bush budget is just too big. It's going to harm us in all of these different ways." And 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 Cheney apparently or reportedly said, "Deficits, you know, Reagan proved deficits don't matter." That political message holds. Now, if the the people who care about this issue are right, they'll matter soon enough. It's just you know future policymakers and future generations that are going to have to deal with a set of choices that'll be much harder.
0: So, Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and on other Slate podcasts. And you can join Slate Plus by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus today. And our bonus segment this week is a uh, a conundrum that has plagued plagued humankind for about 100 years, which is which is most important, learning to swim, learning to drive, or learning to ride a bike. We're going to... Debate that important question and provide an answer, which will which will guide how you raise your children, probably. So go to Slate.com/slash Plus to hear that segment and all the other great Slate Plus segments. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We are home stretching. The election primary season windeth down. The 538 forecasts heat up. We want to take a look at the state of the race as it heads into its final eight weeks, final two months, whatever it is, the final, that final period, that final post-Labor Day period. So John, on the house side democrats need 23 seats which people the the smart the smart money generally thinks means they have to win the popular vote by about 7 points overall and we can pause and not discuss how screwed up it is that democrats need to win by 7 points to be even which reflects sort of democratic crowding and gerrymandering but that's a topic for another day so does it look to you like they're in good shape how does it how does it seem for them these days,
1: yeah. I, I mean, I think it looks like they're in good shape. They're raising lots of money. They have incredible enthusiasm among their um, among their supporters. The thing that is generating enthusiasm uh, in their ranks is um, two things: is one, Donald Trump, who is an enthusiasm machine for Democratic turnout, to the extent that people feel like they want to finally respond to all of his. Things that bother them uh, with a, with a, with the election, which is the first real kind of national response, um, and then I think there are there are a lot of other exciting reasons for Democratic voters to be excited. The number of women who are running, um, which are almost certain to set a record better than 1992, which was seen as a response to the Clarence Thomas hearings, uh, the number of women will be will be huge, and so that is inspiring in and of itself, and sort of has nothing to do with those voters who are energized by. President Trump. So those are things you want your side to be really, really energized and interested. Two things that I'm watching that I'm fascinated by is one, the minority vote. There has been uh, Ron Branstine wrote about this, I think this week, last week, that there is a there is a there is not the response from the minority community in turning out that um, some might have hoped. Now that's been that's traditional for non presidential election years, but you would think that given that minorities feel this president has a particular uh, animus towards them that they that that might um, spark turnout and that they're so the the question is is that true there's some there's some suggestion in brownstein's article that that it's not happening the other thing is who's voting who's not voting are people who didn't vote who maybe haven't voted since say 2010 or something can they be drawn to the polls and then finally it's always or it's often the case that a popular president has trouble bringing out the base for people who aren't him so this was true of president obama we see President Trump trying to gin up a lot of the same issues, cultural values issues to energize an electorate. But do people really go out and, and transfer and uh, that energy even if it's created by the president when they go vote for whoever the, the member of Congress is? And then finally there was a paper a, a Brookings scholar did basically arguing that the economy is good – when it's good, it helps presidents in elections. But when it's good, there is not, the, the, there is not as much evidence um, that it helps – the majority party and so that even if the economy is good which is the thing that that Republicans need to be the most hopeful about that that might not necessarily translate into turning out a lot of republican voters the way it would in a presidential year
0: so emily the soothsayers at 538 issued their senate forecast this week and they say that democrats have a Decent chance to pick off the Senate. They have a one-third chance to pick off the Senate, which is surprising because uh, the, of the 35 seats up this this cycle. 26 of them are being defended by Democrats, including 10 in states that Trump won, and there are only uh, really a small handful of of Republican-held seats that seem accessible to Democrats. Tennessee, potentially Arizona, Nevada,
2: Texas, maybe long, maybe
0: up. Texas. Whereas they've got a hold in Florida, Indiana, West Virginia, North Dakota, Missouri. And so what 538 was saying is that a huge wave, so a, a victory by Democrats of 11 points or more, makes it very possible that they will take uh, several of the Senate seats and, and flip the Senate. Do you think Democrats should be gearing up for that? Or, or is that a, a dream too far?
2: Well, I think the money should be coming in to try to take advantage of the possibility, even if it still seems like a long shot. I mean, when you look at the individual races, a lot of them seem to be close. Although I also I know now we're past Labor Day. So can we pay more attention to the polls, John? And um, after you answer that question, when you were Mm -hmm. talking about the um, perspective softness of minority turnout, how do people Mm -hmm. gauge Turnout two months before an election, like yeah. how do they try to figure out who's going to come, and is it is the methodology sound? It just seems like yeah. hard to know.
1: Fantastic question um, on the general p- question about the polls. It's really really hard to know this far out. We don't know what's going to happen between now and then. Um, we have seen Democratic enthusiasm. In a lot of these different ways, so we've seen it in money, we've seen it in special elections. Remember, special elections are are a special case, which is to say you don't have incumbents. So the real democratic enthusiasm in those those elections doesn't necessarily track to gains in – competitions against Republican incumbents, but you've seen a lot of enthusiasm in those special elections. And so you've got a strong generic ballot uh, turning out. So you never want to take one generic ballot where you ask, will you vote for a Democrat or Republican? People are picking the Democrat. You never want to take one poll too seriously, but you've got all these other different markers that are all pointing in the same direction. With respect to individual polls, um, Mammoth and other polling organizations have been doing something I think is really smart and basically where we'll all be by, you know, certainly by the next, by 2020, if not, you know, by 2018, which is they're running, they issue scenarios, right? So they offer polling numbers, but then basically in the frame of how they talk about it, they embed more than in the past where we just talk about margin of error. They embed um, the uncertainty of polling and what is behind that uncertainty. So they'll do the polling, you know, here's what it looks like if the electorate looks like we think it's going to look like. Here's what it looks like if people who haven't voted t- since 2010 turn out. Here's what it looks like if the Trump voter suddenly turns out even though the president isn't on the ballot. And so they s- show you how the race looks depending on the potential kinds of major behavior, behavioral changes that are still up for grabs. And I think that's really smart because it, it shows us how fluid things are. And so when you ask the question about trust, you know, we can't really trust them because we don't know these huge major variables. But I think you can build a case is the way I tried to uh, for why things look like they're going to go in a particular direction. But I think in any of these Senate races, for sure, particularly with a president that has, um, you know, where you might have a situation with polling where people, you know, hide their feelings. Um I think we, we have to take all polling with uh, huge grains of salt. And then very quickly on the minorities, basically what they try and do is they say, are you interested in the election? Uh, what's your level of interest? Are you thinking about participating? And so they try to do it that way. And in Brownstein's piece was also based on reporting he'd done with union activists who are out trying to, to turn out voters.
0: Going, going back to our last topic, in a way, President Obama it has hit the road or is hitting the road to help Democrats. In the midterms, he is taking, of course... Some credit for the economy. He's deploring the divisiveness and destructiveness of President Trump and his administration. I think there are two schools of thought on this, Emily. One school says this is good for Democrats because President Obama is beloved by Democrats and actually even still widely respected. You know, he, he's overwhelmingly popular. He's popular by more than more than sixty percent of Americans I have a favorable view of him, and therefore uh, he will do do. More to mobilize Democratic voters than he will to antagonize and therefore mobilize Republican voters. And then there's the, the flip side view, which is actually, you know, he's the people who hate him really hate him. And this is a way to get Republicans out to the polls is to have Obama out there reminding them of his presidency. Any any take on that?
2: Well, when he made his big speech, when was it, last weekend, and got a lot of national press coverage, I could see the argument against as much as for, for the reasons you just said, that it could galvanize the Obama haters out there. But I assume going forward, if he starts to make appearances and it becomes more ordinary, he won't get as much national coverage. And then it's a matter of deploying him to the places where he could be helpful. So maybe he doesn't go to North Dakota, where there are a lot of people who don't like him. I don't know if that's true about North Dakota, but it could be. But he does go, you know, to Georgia to try to turn out the minority vote for Stacey Abrams. Like, it just seems like a matter of using him wisely. John, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I think... I think that's right. Using him wisely in those very targeted areas. And and again, with respect to turning out minority voters, that's that's important. I think, you know, there are two other ways in which I'm trying to think this thing through. First of all, anybody who hates President Obama so much that they would be motivated afresh to go vote for whatever congressional candidate is running in their district They're already voting. Very likely to be already motivated. They are likely to be Trump supporters or not like Democrats. Or their level of motivation. If their level of motivation is, unless it's purely, 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 purely race, and then um, you know you could argue they may be already motivated because they don't like the Democratic Party that was associated with him. I just wonder whether there are the, the number of people newly motivated by him is probably lower. Does it allow the president to engage with Obama, which is better turf for him um, among Republican voters than, say, answering the latest you know question about uh, the Russia investigation? You know, sure, it gives him, but um, he's going to kind of do whatever whatever he wants to do. What, what the final thing I was trying to think about is okay. So we know that suburban college-educated women. Um, who voted for President Trump not because they liked him but because they just weren't big fans of of Hillary Clinton's or because they cared about the Supreme Court. Or anyway, they they went through a highly caveated decision tree that allowed them to then go vote for the, the presidential nominee. What gets them to vote and what keeps them from voting? And to the extent that the the message from President Obama is framed by somebody somewhere as, you know, this is a return to kind of a quieter, more d- dignified public presidential behavior. So, it, to the extent that it reminds them of the characterological things that they are not thrilled about with Donald Trump, then it reminds them of one of the reasons they just may not bestir themselves on Election Day to go vote. Um, and so – if they are in their minds thinking, well, gee, the Republicans have done really well for the economy, and I'd like to keep that going, or gee, I'd love to have a check on this president who seems impulsive and who's who doesn't behave in a way I think is American, I think Obama probably helps with that other argument, and then finally, I bet he helps a little on the economic message too. You big, big, high-profile speeches that focus in on the Democratic argument, which is fine, the economy is doing well, but it's leaving everybody behind who is in, you know the kind of voters we care about, um, I think having a high-profile voice saying that is, um, is probably good for Democrats who need to find a way to get that message out because the nobody in the Democratic Party is as big a voice as him, and, and they're having some trouble getting that through the chaotic news cycle.
0: It's funny. Have you guys had a chance to listen to the latest episode of Slow Burn about the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal? No, I'm and, a little bit
1: worried. No, I've, I'm still at, well, I'm still at episode, uh, episode two.
0: Well, it's an interview with Linda Tripp and oh, awesome. it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating about Linda Tripp is and I'd forgotten this if I ever knew it that she she became a Clinton hater almost. Inst- she was working in the Clinton White House, and she became a Clinton hater almost instantly when they moved in because she felt affronted by the way they ha- they th- she felt they besmirched the dignity of the White House. That people didn't dress well enough. There were there was an informality. There was too much cursing. There wasn't enough respect for the military, and uh, and. And she, and she, and that was what motivated her uh, distaste. It, she wasn't a particularly political person. It was, a, it was a kind of aesthetic uh, revulsion against what Clinton was doing, and that was what turned her towards uh, becoming a kind of whistleblower of the Clinton administration, which ultimately led her to taping Monica Lewinsky, et cetera, et cetera. And I was, as I was listening to her, I was wondering, and this was not a question that came up in the slow burn. Is and she's a suburban white woman in her sixties or seventies. And I was wondering, like, oh, does Linda Tripp today feel the same aesthetic revulsion for Donald Trump, who clearly besmirches the dignity of the the presidency all the time and has done incredible incredible damage to our reputation in that way? Or is this actually a proxy for something else? And really, that's not what she cares about. It's just what you know. It's the it's the, the name you put on something, which is actually a different kind of uh, opposition. But it doesn't it doesn't answer that. But Linda Tripp was uh, did re- embody that. Do you think? Uh, Emily, that there are what are the things that could conceivably turn things around for congressional candidates, or, or are there things that could make things much worse can, you mean for the Republicans? For the Republicans, or? do you think they can make? Could they make the economy their issue in such a way they can win on win with it? Is there some other exogenous I- issue that, that could really help them, or is, or do you feel like everything's pretty much baked in and there's just a ton of Democratic enthusiasm, and really the only things that could happen are things that would make people less likely to vote Republican.
2: I think that if Trump did what you suggested in the very beginning of the show and just focused in on the economy like a laser beam and didn't do anything that made him seem unhinged and unstable, that would help them enormously because the country is so tired, right? Just being able to forget about him a little bit, the more it seems like things are normal and the country is okay. then I think a lot of people who might not bother to vote or um, are somehow undecided would feel more comfortable with continuing the current regime, especially if they're being reminded how well the economy is doing. I think it's totally within the Republicans' power to make this election closer.
1: One thing I wonder is, is whether the president is his own political advisor. And, you know, he obviously had great success uh, in the presidential campaign but the electorate is different and um, a lot of the close races and tight you know tight spaces for Republicans on the House level have electorates that look a lot different than the ones in which President Trump is quite popular. And so the president will go out and do his usual rally type routine where he where he plays on and uses um, a, a lot of quite culturally sensitive and incendiary appeals and I'm you know I, I don't see how that, doesn't create, you know, for every Trump voter you turn out in one of those vulnerable districts, you may you may turn off uh, a couple of uh, you know other members of the Republican coalition who might otherwise have turned out.
2: Right, so in other words, a strategy that might have worked in 2016 and could possibly work or be somewhat successful in 2020 might be the wrong one for 2018 because it's a different electorate and he's not on the ballot.
1: Yeah, that's the much more clear yeah. direct way of saying <laughs> that. Yes, I
0: just one last question for either of you is: uh, I'm just interested in one of your takes on the cruz orourke race in Texas, which is uh, shaping up to be fascinating with O'Rourke as a as a very effective, dynamic candidate. Cruz, who is who is a, who's a brilliant politician, because how could somebody who is that Disliked odious? that odious that that disliked by everyone who has ever met him. Uh, you know, continue to win so effectively uh, and so so easily. Uh, so, do, do you think, John? I mean, do you think just from a, a prognosticator's or or a, or a um a gambler's perspective, is this is this one that I should lay my money on? You mean uh, for either losing or? I don't know. I mean, it's like, where should I put my money? I mean,
2: Cruz is still the favorite, right? Like just given the demographics, the composition of Texas.
1: I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, Which isn't to say that the. I mean, it's one of the reasons I'm most interested in that race, and we've talked about this with the Stacey Abrams race a little bit, and um, and other little races. Is the way in which individual races? Well, we saw this negatively on the Republican side. Remember when Sharon Angle um, and uh, Sharon um,
2: Angle? Is she from Nevada?
1: Yes, exactly. Oh, oh, I'm so excited! Um, I remembered that. Yes, Sharon Angle and um, um, and Christine O'Donnell. The witch. Uh, that you're right. Um, She's their Delaware. Races, you know and then she was Delaware. Delaware. Very yeah. good. And then, um, and then the and then the guy whose name I'm totally forgetting in Indiana. Um, when when individual candidates blundered, they were used successfully by Democrats to paint a broader picture of the Republican Party. So in these other races, is there a way in which O'Rourke becomes whether he and we saw this from his answer on the question about the uh, American? Uh, flag relative to protests um, uh, that went on at, at football games and the and the national anthem and the whole ser- that whole set of issues that his answer took on a viral um, quality and rallied Democrats and made them salute to something that they believed in. Separate and apart and totally outside of the individual race. And so does the Texas race and and a, a few of these others do something to, A, keep that enthusiasm going, B, help the party come to a definition of itself in a positive way? The previous examples I used on the Republican side were negative, but – you know, so that's a way in which that race is interesting to me as well. Separate and apart from who actually wins to become the, become or maintain the senatorial seat,
0: well, I think the other reason I think the Texas race is interesting is that we have, we've lived in a world for the past thirty years where everyone said this is a Republican state. This is, the demographics; it, it is it is extremely conservative, and uh, the, even its cities are pretty conservative. And it is it's going to be a Republican state. It's it's a Republican. Uh, it's produced Republican presidents and has a tremendous amount of Republican money in it. And in a way, it's de- – Democrats have talked themselves out of thinking that they could compete there. But actually, if you look at the demographics of the state, yeah. it has a huge uh, Latino population. It has a huge African-American population and and you know a white population, which is – which is very conservative and, and not very accessible to Democrats, but if, if if Democrats in Texas suddenly suddenly had a belief, suddenly thought, "You know what, we can do it, which is kind of the it's the, it's the same as what Stacey Abrams is trying to do in Georgia. It's the same kind of case as Georgia, and they, they got a lot of people registered, that state is an accessible state for them. I don't know that O'Rourke is the person who's going to you know cross that bridge, but he's making a bold attempt.
2: Well, I think it's also a question of timing. Is it an accessible state now? Will it be in, you know, eight or twelve years? Uh, it's, you know, it's trending more purple. Um, but he does seem like he has as good a chance as anyone at, you know, pushing that premise as far as it can go right now. Um, John, when you were talking about candidates who seem like they're extreme and can kind of tar the Republican Party, I was. Wondering what you think about Ron DeSantis, who's the Republican candidate for governor in Florida, who, you know, there's been reporting this week that he was giving speeches at this, you know, far right, the David Horowitz Freedom Center. David Horowitz has said, you know, racist things about black people, terrible things about Muslims. Like, is is he the kind of candidate who's just like a bridge too far for a lot of um, white people who want to think that they have some distance from those kinds of views?
1: Yeah, it's a really the Florida race. That's another one of these races that really interests me because obviously Florida, right? right. Oh my God, Florida—that is just always interesting and um, and and fascinating. But DeSantis is running as basically the Trump. Behavioral r- race, right? So, um, and and so he's he's not just associating himself with the president, but in his race against Andrew Gillum, African American, he is he is trying to embody the full Trumpishness. So it's a it's a referendum on that, and it's a referendum on all these kinds of behaviors, and it has acute interest because it it hits right at one of the central questions of the Trump presidency and Trump era, which is uh, electoral politics and race. Not that that hasn't always been true in America, but we're in an acute moment. Now, you then got a senatorial race in the state. And everything that's going to happen in Florida will set the table or affect the presidential voting in that state possibly or could, you know, obviously different than, say, if it was happening in, in Kentucky. But then you've got the Governor Scott trying to steal the Senate seat from Senator, Senator – and incumbent Democratic Senator Nelson. And so Scott's going to have to run a, a different kind of race because he's just temperamentally not a DeSantis type. And then Trump will jump in the mix too because Florida, Mar-a-Lago, just like – so – I think it has the potential, as you say, Emily, and um, and that potential is exacerbated by things that Scott will have to do and say and be asked to try to maintain his viability to win statewide, um, and then you throw the president in. And I think it has a possibility to be a, def- a definitional race that takes some news cycles um, and, and might uh, ha- have ripples outside of the state.
3: Coming soon from Slate Podcasts.
0: So – If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again.
3: Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.
0: Emily, what is the Flores Agreement? What does the Trump administration propose to do with it?
2: The Flores Agreement is a 1997 settlement that the Clinton administration reached with um, groups representing um, immigrant children. And so what was happening at the time, there was a particular 15-year-old who's the name plaintiff. She had come to the country by herself um, and she was being detained in conditions that the immigration advocates wanted to fight. And so they had this lawsuit against the government. The government was actually like winning um, in a number. It looked like it was going to win. And then the Clinton administration agreed to a set of parameters for what happens when children come um, to the country without their parents and basically agreed that they would not be held in detention for more than 20 days and that the kinds of facilities they would be in would meet various standards. Um, So that held more or less, um, not like entirely consistently, but it was basically the law until 2015 And at that point, there were lots of kids coming over from Central America during the Obama administration. And the government – some of them were coming with their parents. And the government um, started detaining – families together in detention centers. And immigration advocates, again, complained about that, even though the families were together. They didn't think the conditions were good. And, you know, medium to long-term detention is bad for kids psychologically. There are long-term harms that come from it. And so there was another round of litigation over the Flora settlement. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on the West Coast said that its terms applied to kids who come over with their parents. So then, fast forward to you know, last late spring and summer, as the Trump administration starts separating kids, one of the problems for the Trump administration's goal of you know being very punitive and and um, trying to detain people coming over with children, the Flores settlement was a big problem for them because. They couldn't, under the terms of the agreement, hold the families in detention for longer than 20 days. And so that that was part of the um, genesis of the family separation problem, which, of course, like has caused so much terrible harm for kids and um, been just such a tragedy um, for human rights. So the question now is whether the government can effectively regulate its way out of the obligations of the Flores settlement. It was never a settlement that was meant to last for 20 years. It was like a sort of, you know, framework put in place temporarily by the courts with the assumption that the executive branch would pass new regulations or Congress would pass a law that would change it. And that never happened. But we do have this protection in the Flores settlement, you know, that still prevents kids, if they come with their parents or without, from being held for 20 days. And then imposes these standards for the um, the kinds of facilities they're going to be in. And the Trump administration is now trying to get rid of all of that and finally do the regulating that would give the government much more um, flexibility and and leeway to um, detain kids with their parents for longer to, um, you know, deal differently with asylum applicants, basically. Um, And, you know, from the Trump administration's point of view, this is all about trying to send the message that, you know, immigrants should not try to come here, that they're going to be, you know, sent home immediately or held for very long periods of time. This is all about ending what the Trump administration calls catch and release. You know, the problem is that there's just a lot of super – charged human rights concerns here. And then there's just a backdrop of, you know, the country's changing immigration picture. I mean, this week we're getting statistics that, in fact, more immigrants are coming from Asia than from Latin America. Our generic image of, you know, relatively uneducated Latin American immigrants, there are still people like that, obviously, who come to the country. But more and more, we're having immigrants from Asia who are more likely to be college educated and then just this sort of basic question of like, do we even really have a problem of having too many people trying to come to the country? Do we want to have the kind of you know terribly harsh or punitive conditions that deter people, or is this just like a kind of ginned up political fight that Trump is using to appeal to his base?
0: All right, I have three very quick questions before getting. So, just on the logic of it or how it works. So, currently uh, under the Flores, if after twenty days a child who's here alone, what, and there's no, if there's a relative, a relative can pick that child up. What if there's no relative?
2: That's a good question. I guess then the government can keep people, they have to be in the least restrictive conditions. So I think that's part of it. It's like, what's the, then you would have to put someone into foster care, right? Because like, you're not allowed to just toss them, but you're not allowed to keep them in conditions that are more restrictive than need be for their own safety.
0: And with the families. But currently, or where you have a family in detention, you can only hold it for 20 days because there's a child with it. Do they just release the child or do they release the whole family after 20 well, days? Well,
2: they had been releasing the whole family. I mean, I think for the same reason that trying to find people to come forward to sponsor yeah. the kids that was just, like, too hard, too much. You know, that's a lot of placements to be organizing. I should also mention there's a pilot program in which they've been releasing families, sometimes with ankle bracelets, that has had a lot of success in getting people to make their appearances, right? I mean, if you're worried about immigration and you think there's too much immigration, your sort of parade of horribles here is that people make these asylum claims. They get past the first barrier of showing they have credible fear of returning to their countries. And then you let them go and they just like melt into the undocumented population and there's no way to stop them. And then that encourages more people to come. But in fact, we have less restrictive ways of trying to get people to come back to um, immigration hearings.
0: Um, And the last one is do all these things apply to asylum seekers too?
2: Yeah, Thanks. this is, a mo- I mean, I shouldn't say, a- I'm not sure if it's most, but a lot of the people we're talking about are seeking asylum. So there was a lot of confusion last summer, of the difference between people just like crossing the border and kids who'd been unaccompanied from the outset, like who truly were by themselves versus people who got separated from their parents. And then the government classified them um, falsely as unaccompanied. But yeah, a lot of these people are seeking asylum. Um, yes,
0: so I, I I would just want to draw a distinction with the your point about Asian immigrants and the the fact that Asian immigrants are are now the majority or they're much higher percentage than they have been, but it's I, I think the percentage of people who are coming to the country, un- without documents or without authorization is that is still a Latino population right.
2: No, I'm not sure that's true. I mean, the the numbers were really close, even the overall numbers. It was 41% Asian and 39% Latino. And I think this is going back to 2010. So, you know, look, there are still a lot of people coming from Latin America. There's no question.
0: Is it a problem that needs to be fixed? none of this seems like a really good system like if you if you're coming to the country if we if we believe we should have border enforcement so people are coming to the country whether with children or without you, you, there has to be some kind of mechanism to say like you can or can't be in the country and we have to be able to keep if we if it's somebody who you think shouldn't be in the country we have to be able to keep track of them it does seem like there has to be some kind of system and the fact that children are there and children are sometimes alone also means that you you have to solve for that problem so Is there an optimal system for this? Is there a much better system that's obvious to everyone? You're saying maybe it's ankle bracelets.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that – and and sometimes you don't even need ankle bracelets. And sometimes you want to just try notifying people and um, giving them encouragement to come back to court that way. I think that the idea that you have to lock people up in order to make sure that they are going to come back – Is just not true. And that assumption takes us to a really bad place where we don't want to be that like, yes, I mean, unless you believe in, in open borders, you think there has to be some control, some screening of asylum applicants. And there is that. But, you know, what should happen to them while they wait for that credible fear determination, which can take weeks That's the first question. And then if they pass the bar of credible fear, you know, how can we figure out a way to have most of them come back to their hearings without detaining them? I mean, I just – you know, whatever the um, concerns are about making it too easy for people to come into the country who haven't waited in line or don't necessarily meet the criteria for asylum – You have to weigh that against just, like, the tremendous suffering that we saw last summer and that we continue to see. I mean, the New York Times has a piece this week that the numbers of children being held in detention right now have just skyrocketed. And that's largely because... The Trump administration's policies have discouraged family members who would normally come forward to sponsor these kids from coming forward because they themselves are undocumented and the whole thing has become so radioactive that you have kids locked up for weeks and months. And that's just – we should be doing – so much to try to prevent that from happening
0: right and it's also just so much more costly right yes. In so, so, so that's it so it's right? costly i mean it's so it's obviously morally costly because like to imprison somebody exacts a toll on the on the jailer as much as it, i mean not as much but it exacts a toll on the jailer which is us like so we bear the moral burden of, of detaining people who are not criminals who have done something you know which is against our laws but they are not criminals they haven't murdered somebody they haven't uh, committed a robbery they've you know attempting to make a better life and Whatever, but so so. There is a moral cost to us, but there is just like a, a huge economic cost to build a bunch of internment camps. I mean, there was a story today that 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 uh, the government shifted millions of dollars out of FEMA out of emergency management to detention because we're spending so much money to deal with these people who are now detaining. And if, I guess that, that what I what I think maybe needs to I need to know, and maybe this case needs to just be made better is if somebody is released into the world, whether with an ankle bracelet or not an ankle bracelet, but to a relative or to, to somebody who can care for them, what is the evidence that they will come back and show up for a hearing? Is it, is it that 99% of them do it? Is it 99.9%? Is it 50%?
2: Right. Well, I'm just going to go back to citing this pilot program, which I think used ankle bracelets and other means and had a lot of success, like a really high rate of success in getting people to come back. So it seems like We have tested an alternative. It's really promising, and we should be doing a lot more of that. And the reason we're not doing a lot more of that is that it still looks like catch and release. And so from Mm -hmm. the point of view of the Trump base, it's unacceptable. But it's not that it doesn't work, pragmatically speaking.
0: It's the same as the bail question you've been dealing with, except – I mean, it's a different population, but it's yeah, basically the it's same very similar. issue.
2: Yes, I mean, luckily, well, no, that's not true. I mean, there also is money bail, money detainers that come into play in immigration cases, and they usually are just exorbitantly high the amounts people are asked to put down. So that is not. Let's not do that.
0: Um, anything else?
2: The only last thing I wanted to say is that you know, since the family separation started last May, they've been erupting into the news at certain moments and then kind of simmering on the back burner at others. And meanwhile, like, there are still hundreds of kids who've been separated from their parents who the government can't find their parents, often because they deported them, or for other reasons. And it's just like, we're still, um, we should be bearing witness, we still are responsible as a country for this, like, terrible psychological suffering that we've caused to all these kids. And it, anyway, it just feels to me like obligatory to try to hang on to this, to paying attention to this issue, even though there is just so much else that's um, competing for our attention.
0: So let's go to cocktail chatter when you, John Dickerson, are kicking back at uh, the palatial dickersonian airy overlooking manhattan i don't even know if you live in an area. you might live on a basement i don't even know but i'm assuming you live in an airy and you're overlooking manhattan uh with your clinking uh scotch on the rocks what are you going to be chattering about i wish my life
1: were, were this were this interesting uh, I am chattering about a book uh, that I read in a woman I interviewed this week, "The Field of Blood: Violence in Congress and the Road to Civil War." By Oh, Joanne um, jo- Freeman. Jo- Joanne Freeman, uh, who is, as you can tell from that um, uh, exclamation from Emily, is a professor at uh, Yale. Um, first of all, she's great. She uh, wrote a book uh, that I used a lot in um, in Whistle Stop um, Affairs of Honor about the kind of code of honor at the beginning of the American experiment and how that was so important to understanding the people who built the beginning of of America. And this is now, well, it's just a great, it's a great book. So it's basically about all of the fights that took place in Congress during this very tumultuous period. So basically from about 1833 to the Civil War and we we know about some of the more famous um, fights, but what makes this book better or makes this book so interesting is that what Freeman does is she finds this fellow Benjamin Brown French who was a, from New Hampshire, arrived in the city in 1833 and becomes basically a clerk of the house. And the accounts of a lot of the fights on the floor of the house w- were passed over in the press. And um, so you, you can't look at official records and can't see them. Or if you do see them, you see only their, the little wisps of them. There will be a, a newspaper account will say there was a commotion in the corner or the debate uh, got pointed. But French, in his diary, writes about, you know, the pistols that were brought to the floor and the bowie knives that were that were brandished in the middle of these debates. So anyway, it's just a great tale about this awful period in American history, awful because these fights were all around the question of slavery, uh, each new state that was admitted to the union the fights would um, come up afresh and uh, but it's done and told in a very uh, rich and detailed and interesting way there are obvious interesting parallels which one doesn't want to take too far but about the sort of total breakdown and the nature of the, the fighting which is obviously much much worse than than today you watch the nation you know incapable of escaping itself basically and voices occasionally get raised up when um, these fights are taking place and people say surely we're not going to go so far as to you know break into open arms and obviously uh, that was they were wrong anyway so it's a very interesting entertaining well done book and she wrote it over the course of 18 years so it is it's very tightly uh, put together
0: wow yale has so many good civil war historians seems like a real specialty of your university emily
2: yeah. Well, Joanne goes way beyond the Civil War. She she reigns. Oh, sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. She's yeah. all American history, basically.
0: Emily, when you're sitting by your koi pond <laughs> with a crisp gin and tonic in hand.
2: Oh, that sounds so nice. What are you um, going to be
0: chattering to the – denizens well, of New Haven about.
2: We decided not to talk about the Serena Williams-Naomi-Osaka match this week because it was long ago. But I can't resist bringing it up to chatter about to say two things. One is that I'm, everybody has their own opinion about this. And one of the reasons it works so well as a question to debate is it's full of like gray area. But I would like to argue that the overarching problem with what happened was disproportionate punishment that, you know, yeah. the penalties leading up to the ultimate penalty of losing a game might have had some justification or at least were like part of, you know, how matches can play out. Though I also think the coaching penalty was probably like just... um It was not the right moment to try to enforce a rule that often goes unenforced. But the game penalty at the end was disproportionate punishment and ruined the match, not just for Serena Williams, but for Naomi Osaka, who walked away, you know, clearly feeling incredibly upset and also for the fans. And I just think that the thing about disproportionate punishment is that it's not about innocence or guilt you serena did not in my view like behave perfectly through the entire ordeal. And so, because she bears some responsibility, I think people are losing sight or it's possible to lose sight of what a big problem disproportionate punishment really is. But, in my view, this incident illustrates that. And the notion that, you know, tennis refs are contemplating a boycott of Serena because of this whole thing is just appalling to me. Um, I don't know what more they could possibly do to alienate women tennis fans. But, that would do it for me. But I do think they should be allowed to speak out. I didn't know that they're not allowed to talk about matches afterward, and that does not seem fair to them. Okay, that's all. Yeah.
1: Well, and the, it's, you know, the idea that—I mean, umsters are supposed to calm things down, so the idea of a boycott is not calming things down. Um, and also, as um, Trevor Noah was saying, like, you can't say you're not going to referee or umpire— one of Serena Williams' games. I mean, she is women's tennis right now. It's like saying I'm not going to, you know, umpire a game in which they use tennis balls. Um, So I don't know how real that is. Bad idea.
2: Yes, agreed.
1: The coaching
0: rule is so weird. I don't understand it at all. they should get
2: rid of that rule too.
1: Yeah, I think they should definitely get rid of it. It would make the games more interesting. It would make them really interesting because you'd see, you know, the coach thinks she should do this. Is she doing what the coach said or is he doing what uh, his coach, you know, and then it, I think it would make it really interesting.
0: Yeah. Right. My chatter. So I hate skateboarding. Not interested in skateboarding. Wait, you in,
2: hate it? Why do you have an even opinion not, about Not interested
0: in skateboarding culture. Just like find it overblown and bro and annoying. And yet I saw one of the best movies I have ever seen this week. And it's about skateboarding or it's sort of incidentally about skateboarding. I cannot recommend Minding the Gap highly enough. You may have heard of it. It's a documentary about three skateboarders in Rockford, Illinois. It sounds totally unpromising. And they're growing up in in you know in the past decade or so. Uh, one is a Chinese-American kid who is now in his late 20s. Another is a white-American kid who's now in his late 20s. And another is an African-American kid who's now in his early 20s. And they are friends growing up skateboarding. And the Chinese-American kid, Bing Lu, who's the director of the movie, from their late teens was filming a lot of stuff because he was making skateboarding videos. And so he was filming the skateboarding and he has a beautiful eye, just like a great kinetic eye. So all the skateboarding scenes are quite beautiful to watch and stunning to see. But it becomes a documentary about these three young men growing up in, in sort of lower middle class, working class America and their encounters with violence and their encounters with domestic violence in particular. Uh, and... The movie is just stunning, and it doesn't sound—it sounds like nothing as I describe it. And you're just going to have to take my word that it's a stunning, stunning, stunning movie about America, about violence, about skateboarding, about manhood. Um, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's on Hulu. It's called Minding the Gap. Also, terrible title. Be much better with a better title. But Bing Liu. I suspect will become one of, you know, he'll become somebody who we hear of because his eye is amazing. And the movie is just incredible. We had great listener chatters again this week. You can tweet us at slate Gabfest with something you think you'd be chattering about at your cocktail party. Andy Markowitz at Witzmark recommends the London review of books, magnum opus by Andrew Hagan about the Grenfell tower fire it's a huge investigation to the fire. It's a description of the people who lived in the Grenfell Tower. Of course, the London apartment building that burned, and it burned because of essentially it was it had the wrong kind of insulation on it, which caused uh, what should have been a nothing fire to spread very rapidly and in a terrible way through a whole building and ended up killing more than 70 people. And the investigation of who was responsible, uh, what the re- sort of response was, it exposes sort of all kinds of divisions in English life and in London life. It's a it's a magnificent story. So check out The Tower by Andrew O'Hagan in the London Review of Books. That is our show for today. Jocelyn Frank produces the Gabfest. Our researcher is now Bridget Dunlap, and Izzy is having his last day here. Goodbye, Izzy. It's been wonderful having you. We will miss you.
1: Thank you, Izzy.
0: Follow us on Twitter at @slightGabfest. Tweet your chatter to us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Blotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week.
4: Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
3: Coming soon from Slate Podcasts.
0: So first it was Dade County.
1: Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two to one margin.
3: In the late 1970s cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people.
0: And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene.
1: Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all.
3: A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity.
1: Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle.
3: His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet.
4: California realized that they were coming for us. I'm
3: Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California.
1: Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative.
0: It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality.
1: Your life as you knew it would be destroyed.
4: We've got to fight. That we can't let this happen in California.
3: The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. Gay, rights now! gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists.
4: We were all coming out all day long, every
3: day. <laughs> and activists became leaders.
1: My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you.
3: Floburn. <laughs> Season nine, Gaze Against Briggs, out May twenty second, wherever you listen.
0: If we lose here, it'll be fifty years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag
3: queen say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.